Today's sermon comes from Isaiah chapter 62, verse 8 through chapter 63, verse 6. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear the stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Who is this who comes from Eden, in crimson garments, from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trod the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. During my senior year of high school, I took an AP art class. I wasn't very artistic then, and I'm not very artistic today, but I had an amazing art teacher who would take uh, me, classmates, walk us, kind of hold our hand and walk us through these amazing art projects, one of them being pottery. I still have some of those pieces of pottery tucked away, not necessarily on display, but what was amazing, and I'm still amazed by it, and I remember it vividly as a senior in high school, watching that piece of pottery come out of the kiln, and being absolutely struck and amazed at the transformation, the glaze we put on it from, from point A, which was this just regular old ugly lump of clay, into something that was beautiful, relatively speaking, beautiful. I remember the process, the patient shaping that happened on this piece of clay, and a combination of my fingers or of knives or pottery tools, squeezing it here, pushing it there, cutting it here, to shape it into something. It's no wonder that in the scriptures, God uses the imagery of a potter and a piece of clay to describe how he shapes us, how he changes us. We all have shaping influences in our lives. Every person that's here has shaping influences. Isaiah 62 in the beginning of 63 describes the shaping influence 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrected Christ at his first coming and at his second coming. And what it describes is the shaping of the resurrected Christ, not just on individuals, but on a people, on a community, on a church. What kind of people are shaped by the resurrection? First, people who understand loving discipline. Look at verse 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. And this is language of promise. God swearing, God promising to do something. What does he promise? What is the promise? Rest of verse 8. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. This is speaking of times in Israel's history where God would use the nations to bring judgment or punishment on his people for their sin. Uh, Judges chapter 6 is a great example of this. The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and because of their sin, God gave them over into the hands of Midian, that was a foreign nation, for seven years. And when Israel would plant crops, the Midianites would come in and destroy them, leaving no provision for Israel. God used the nations to punish his people for their sin. And yet what we hear here in verse 8 is he promises to never do that again. To never punish his people like that again. Why? Well, we're in this section of Isaiah that's looking forward to Israel's future. After exile, post-exile, now God is painting a picture of their future. He has just introduced the anointed one at the beginning of Isaiah 61. As we've seen, that's Jesus Christ. So God says, I will never do that again. Why? Because he would send his anointed one, Jesus, to bear punishment for them, to bear judgment for them. And because Jesus Christ would come bear the punishment, they no longer had to fear punishment. It was a promise of Christ coming to bear judgment. And that promise extends to you today. That if you're in Christ, if you've trusted Christ, there is no punishment for you. You know, we can live our lives, and even as believers, we can live our lives almost waiting for the shoe to drop. Or almost waiting for God to drop the hammer. And yet what we learn here is that God says no. There is no more punishment for those who are in Christ. Now, you hear that and you go, but what do we do with Hebrews chapter 12? This speaks of the Lord bringing discipline into the life of a follower of Christ that is painful. What do we do with that? Well, there's a huge difference between punishment and discipline. Huge difference. Now, let me, let me explain the difference by introducing a couple of examples. About 10 years ago, 
a 16-year-old boy named Cooper Van Fusen was sentenced to two years in prison. Two years in prison for stealing his father's gun. This gun was used in a violent burglary. And so the judge sentenced Cooper to two years in maximum security prison because he was held responsible for providing the gun. And so the family is sobbing as their son is sent off to maximum security prison. Cold, hard justice. So, now let's just see. Four-year-old boy destroys his brother's Lego pilot ship. And he does it with a mischievous grin on his face. Court is in session with mom or dad. Who no fight. Both parties give their defense. Mom or dad makes a decision and a consequence is given. The boy in the courtroom experienced punishment. The boy in the living room experienced discipline. Now here is the reality. They're different, but yet in both cases, both parties were found guilty and both were given consequences. She's saying, what is the difference? What's the difference between discipline and punishment? Discipline seeks a changed heart. Punishment seeks retribution. Punishment looks back at retribution. Discipline looks forward. Looks forward with hope. When the judge sentenced this 16-year-old boy, and when he sentenced the boy, he checked it off the list and moved on to the next case. Justice was served. And that's all that punishment requires. But discipline is different. Discipline is about restoration. Discipline is about looking forward. And so the parents of this boy in the living room, in, in disciplining this child, began to unpack things. What were the attitudes and the causes behind this? Not just the behavior, but the heart behind the behavior. Discipline looks to the hope of the future and says this. I don't care about what you did as much as why you did it and what it means for your future if we don't deal with it now. And we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of shape. The resurrection of Jesus the resurrected Christ gives us a vision of our future, what we will be, and the assurance that God is going to get us there, which means he is committed to discipline, shaping you into what you will be. So not only does discipline seek a changed heart, but discipline seeks a changed relationship. Discipline seeks a changed relationship. Look at verse 9 and the transformed relationship in verse 9 that comes right after God's promise not to punish in verse 8. 
He promises not to punish, and in verse 9, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Restored relationship with God. Restored relationship with God. Think how strange it would have been when the judge pronounced the two-year prison sentence on that 16-year-old boy. How strange it would have been if the judge would have jumped up, run off the stand, and given the boy a big hug. That didn't happen. Because punishment doesn't require any relationship between the judge and the guilty party. But discipline is very different. Discipline does. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 to 8 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you all in which all are participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're in Christ, a change has happened in the relationship. God is no longer your judge, God is your father. It's the work of Christ and you putting your trust in what He's done for you that changes the relationship. From judge to father, from punishment to discipline. As judge, all God had to do was to send you to the prison of hell. That's punishment. But God, as loving father, sent his son to you in your place so that your relationship to him could be restored. And now you have loving fatherly discipline in your life. As one pastor expressed it, there's only one thing worse for a kid than being spanked, grounded, or having the phone and computer taken away. And that's being neglected. Being neglected. We often operate as we have two options. It's either punish or ignore. Discipline is neither. Discipline is neither. Now, punishment is a lot easier than discipline. Like we're all wired for justice, and our short tempers cater to being the quick judge, our internal judge, right? Punishment is a lot easier than discipline. Discipline requires patience and wisdom and love. And that's what the resurrected Christ is doing in you. Is shaping you into a person, especially if, for those of you that are parents, that disciplines rather than punishes. I want you to think about your relationships. Could be parent-child, could be husband and wife, could be boss-employee, could be teacher-student. Would people with whom you are in relationships characterize you as one who wields the caregiving staff of a shepherd 
for the gavel of a judge. What kind of people are being shaped by the resurrection? The people who understand discipline and the difference between discipline and punishment. But second, we're being shaped into a people who welcome with open arms. Look at verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift a signal over the peoples. This is a picture of a of a city, and a city that has been restored, and a city that's very welcoming, and a city that's very inviting, where the gates have been opened, the, the roads have been resurfaced, all the obstacles have been removed. Isaiah is describing here Israel's future. This is a city that we see in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem in Revelation. And ultimately, this city is it's the church. All obstacles removed. What's the attraction of this city? Look at verse 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. His, there refers to the anointed one. It refers to Jesus. And what that says is that Jesus' reward is the people that he saves. The resurrected king of this city sees the people of this city as his reward, not as his pause to do his bidding, but as his reward, as his delight. That means you. Now, do you feel like you're Jesus' reward? Of course you do. Because you're well aware of your sin and your unworthiness. But that's what this says, is that Jesus thinks of you as his reward. It's as if Jesus saying, wow, for all of that sacrifice that I went through, to the cross, into the grave, rising, that, that entire my life of sacrifice, and the reward I get is the people I died for. That's what Jesus thinks about you. We need to align our thinking to Christ's thinking. And that's the attraction of the city. This city of the resurrected king that delights over his people. And so the command is to open the gates wide and invite the world in to see such a king. Because I'll tell you what, our world, when I say kings in our world, leaders, we have different forms of government, but it's very rare to find a king in our world that sacrifices for his people, that loves his people. And so the gates to this city are opened up for the world to come in and to experience such a loving, beautiful, resurrected king who delights over his people. That's the invitation here. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 14 about a man who threw a, a big dinner banquet. And he threw the banquet and he sent the invitations out and everyone that was invited, person by person, began making excuses of why they couldn't come. And so the master of this banquet told his servant, go out quickly 
to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. The resurrected Christ opens the doors and says, go invite the world into this banquet. I want my house full. He said, I love my people. And I want all obstacles removed from people coming to enjoy this banquet. So Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 15. And Paul says this in Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another. As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, this verse has context. And the context is the previous chapter, Romans 14. And in Romans 14, Paul is exhorting his hearers to not judge the weak, to not cast and pass judgment on the weak. Now, the immediate context of Romans 14 that builds to this verse about welcoming one another was disagreements that had developed over secondary issues in the church. And these disagreements over secondary issues were breaking down along cultural and ethnic lines in the church between followers of Christ who had a Jewish background and followers of Christ who had a non-Jewish background. And what it developed was these disagreements became very full of contempt and judgment filled. And the church had become a very unwelcoming place. It had become a place that was contentious and full of judgment because of these disagreements over secondary issues. And so Paul calls us out in Romans 15, 1. It says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I love the way one translation phrases this. It says, We who have strong faith ought to shoulder the burden of the doubts and qualms of others and not just go our own sweet way. The way of judgment and contempt is very powerful. We are very quick to size people up and very quick to rush the judgment that is harsh and final. Look at that guy dressed like a total hipster. How phony is attention. She's a Republican or a Democrat. How can any thinking, sensitive person, like me for instance, take that stand? Or look at that young man with a hoodie. We all know what that means. Or look at that woman over there always raising her hands in worship. Or look at him, he just sits in worship like a cold head of cabbage. Now I could go on and on. 
The size people are, we come to quick judgments, and the church can become very quickly an unwelcoming place. And the solution to this problem is not sensitivity training, nor is it political correctness training. It's the resurrected Christ. That's the solution. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And how did Christ welcome you? And when did Christ welcome you? When you were sinful and unworthy. That's when he welcomed you. When you were weak. Not when you had it all put together and you were strong. But when you were weak. The resurrected Christ doesn't dismiss secondary issues. Like Culture, politics, worship styles, how to help the poor, how to raise kids, or how America should get involved in global conflict. He doesn't dismiss them. He transcends them. He transcends them such that with your eyes on the resurrected Christ, and I want you to hear this, and this is incredibly important in our current day, with your eyes on the resurrected Christ, you can radically welcome someone and disagree with them at the same time. With your eyes on the resurrected Christ, you can radically embrace someone and challenge them at the same time. Welcome one another. Christ has welcomed you. Are you welcoming people who don't dress like you? Or worship like you? Or think like you? Or look like you? Are you welcoming people who you think are undereducated or overeducated? Are you welcoming people who you think are pretentious or stuck up or weak in their faith? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. What kind of people are shaped by the resurrection? It's a people who understand discipline, loving discipline. It's a people who are welcoming, welcoming with open arms. And finally, finally, it's a people who love their enemies. Now, you may think this is a very odd conclusion. Love your enemies. To the first six verses of Isaiah 53. They talk about vengeance and blood. Look at four. Verse one Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, in his eyes, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Edom was a nation to the south of Israel, Basra was its capital city. And Edom had a long-standing history of being enemies of God and enemies of God's people. In fact, Edom goes all the way back to the personal rivalry between Jacob and Esau. Esau being the founder of Edom. So Edom was that, that nation that was just kind of the, the, the stereotype of hatred towards God, hatred towards his people. Edom represented the humanity at its worst. Persecution of God's people, despising God. And so we see here this person of strength comes 
comes from, the vision of this person coming from Edom with blood-stained garments. So verse 2, why is your apparel red? And your garments like kid as you tread in the winepress. In other words, the person coming, the question is, why are your garments stained with blood? Verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So this is a description of the anointed one. This is not a description of Jesus that we talk about often, for obvious reasons. And yet, this imagery is picked up in Revelation chapter 19, where it describes Jesus clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is a picture of the resurrected Christ coming a second time in judgment. And you say, then how in the world are we going to arrive at the conclusion of loving your enemies coming off these six verses? Well, Paul ties these together in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. He says, Behold, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Followers of Christ are not to seek vengeance. And the reason doesn't belong to you. Vengeance belongs to Christ. What belongs to you is to love your enemy. In fact, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says, love your enemy. And he says, it's very easy to love someone who loves you. That's natural, to love someone who loves you. You don't have to work hard at that. You can do that in your own strength. Jesus goes on to say, even the tax collectors, the Gentiles do that. But loving your enemy is supernatural. You can't do that in your own strength. You can't do that in your own strength. So what empowers you to love your enemy? It's this vision in Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19. It's this vision of the resurrected Christ. Holding vengeance in his hand. Your, your desire for justice is God-given. You were created in the image of a just God. It just doesn't belong to you. It's not your responsibility. Vengeance, justice, belongs to the resurrected Christ. You're free to love your enemy, leaving vengeance in Christ's hand. I want you to imagine that you have uh, two magnets, one in each hand. And you try to take uh, these two magnets and push them together with the same poles facing each other. But what happens when you take two magnets?
magnets with light poles and push them together. They repel. You can't do it. Love and vengeance in the hands of a person is like light pole magnets in the hands of a person. You, a person cannot hold love and vengeance together. You're left with one of two options. Either you choose vengeance and you make the person pay. Or, because you know there's a command that says love my enemy, you say, I'm not going to choose to make them pay, but I'm just going to abandon them. I'm going to withdraw. I'm not going to love them. Understands loving discipline versus punishment. A community that, that opens 
its arms wide and welcomes one another as Christ has welcomed us. And may we be a community that loves our enemies, trusting the resurrected Christ with justice. Let's pray. So, Father, we just are a week off of a Sunday celebration of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. What a joyful celebration it was. And yet we're now faced with that question of what kind of people are shaped by the resurrection. Oh, Father, we confess that oftentimes we sit around waiting for the hammer to drop, that we, we functionally don't live with the distinction between punishment and discipline. Father, convince us that you are our loving Father, that anything you do, give, allow into our lives, that we can receive it as loving discipline, as shaping. Father, would you make this a community that is welcoming, welcoming to all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, recognizing that we were welcomed by your Son, Jesus, when we were weak and unworthy. Would we be a people that welcome those who are struggling and full of doubts and weak? Father, we give you to love those who you love, who love us. But the love in you is supernatural. And so we plead you by your Spirit that you would create in us a love for our enemies. And that as we enjoy this meal, this Lord's Supper, that you would use it to empower us to become the people that you've called us to be in a world that is just searching for answers. May this be a church, a local church, a local city that opens wide its doors to people who are hurting and struggling and weak and need. Just like we are hurting and struggling and weak and need. Feed us now. Praise in Jesus' name.